0: Uh, this morning, we're going to begin our time in Scripture in the second chapter of the book of Philippians. So uh, it's in the New Testament. It's one of Paul's epistles. It's a letter written to a church plant, um, not quite as old as ours, probably in the first three or four years of its life, but a group of people who are attempting to be relevant in their community and to follow the way of Jesus, though they, like us, would have never met him. They would have had to trust and follow his spirit and learn from the teachings of the apostles. As you head that direction, I'll remind you of where we've been. Uh, We end our series today on the way of Jesus. Now, that does not mean that Jesus moves out of the focal center of the life of our church starting tomorrow or in 45 minutes from now. Not at all. But we've tried to reestablish what discipleship would have looked like for the people who were called disciples by Jesus, the the men and women who followed him in the New Testament. And we've tried to evaluate whether our modern systems of discipleship, our programs, the, the things that we maybe have relied upon for the last hundred years or so in the West, are really working. Asking ourselves hard questions about, what does it mean for Jesus to be our rabbi? What does it mean for him to be the vine? How does the Holy Spirit play a role in that? And so we've tried as best we can to center our focus as followers of Jesus around three objectives. They are belonging to Jesus, beholding Jesus, and becoming like him. And in order to achieve those objectives, we have worked our way relatively slowly. We've taken about six weeks to get through five principles in what I call a dynamic spiritual formation paradigm, meaning how we can participate in becoming who we are becoming. So we've talked about uh, the teaching of Jesus. We've talked about practices of Jesus. We've talked about um, being in community, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We've dealt with spiritual realities, all of which are intended to run counter to the way that we've been discipled by the world, the way that we will constantly be discipled by the world. There has never been a stronger cultural formation machine than the one that you live in, the one that you participate in on your cell phone and your tablet and your laptop and your streaming services. Uh, It's incessant. And so we've tried to navigate that. If this is your first Sunday, you're coming in at the tail end of some pretty heavy philosophical concepts. I would encourage you to to go back, if you're willing, and take a look at the previous sermons. This is essentially one eight hour lecture cut into uh, 10 different chunks to try to make it easier to understand. But each of the sermons in this series, Relies upon all the ones before it to really make clear sense. And that includes today. So, as we land the plane, we'll be leveraging those concepts today. What I hope to do, as best I can, is to try to explain to you not just the theory, we've done that, right? We've talked a lot about why do we need to follow Jesus and what will happen and why is this way of following him better, maybe, than programs or systems that we've been exposed to in the past. What I want to do today is try to help you understand the relevance of the way of Jesus. Why does this matter? What is it about the world that you and I live in that requires something this countercultural in order to get us into the present reality of the kingdom of God? Why can't we just decide? What is it about our nature? What is it about the nurture that happens around us or the lack thereof that leads us to become the kinds of people who desperately need to be saved? I want to do that by following two events that happened in the last seven days. And I'll start by mentioning an event that I believe has massive implications for the evangelical world, especially in the West, though I would assume some of you probably are not aware of it yet, Uh, and I want to make you aware of it now. A year ago, in June of 2021, the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention formed a task force, and this is atypical. This does not usually happen. Normally, when the SBC gets together for two days a year, it's a business meeting, Uh, Like it or not, in function, the Southern Baptist Convention is primarily a bank. It's a financial institution designed to find ways to distribute resources to missionaries who would not have access to those resources otherwise and to give them opportunities to go into places where they'll probably never plant a church that can survive based on its own tithes and offerings. In the midst of that meeting, this task force was formed by everyday people like you and me, not by some coalition of high-powered pastors or full-time employees of the convention, But 15,000 messengers voted nearly unanimously to put this task force together in order to find and hire a qualified third-party organization to investigate possible mishandling of sexual abuse among churches affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. And the scope of that investigation was to begin January 1 of the year 2000 and go through June 12th, which was the day that we met for the convention last year, of 2021, So a scope of about 20 and a half years. Last Sunday, so just seven days ago, May 22nd of this year at 12 p.m. Alaska time, the report for that investigation was released to the public. We got the news. The organization did their job. They did thousands of hours of investigation. They went through all of the old emails and text messages of all the people involved. They did lots of interviews. And what they found was not good news and I wanna make sure that you understand that your elders are taking this very seriously right now. Um, I don't have time at all to give you much of an idea of the contents of that investigative report simply because it's 300 pages long. Uh, I read it last afternoon as it was released uh, in lieu of my Sunday afternoon nap, and it was devastating for me. It took me about three hours to make it through the entire thing, uh, just reading it to understand the context. Though I have to warn you about the nature of the findings because they are by nature sexual and somewhat graphic, I would commend to you taking the time to look into this. This is significant. This is in many ways a turning point, I would argue, a watershed moment, not just in the Southern Baptist Convention, but in global Protestant life. You may be familiar with roughly a decade ago, the Catholic Church going through something like this, and from my perspective, my opinion here, mishandling it grossly trying to hide things that happened, shuffling people around in the hopes that no one would ever catch on to the fact that certain priests were predators. And then when the time came to finally deal with it, doing so behind closed doors, without a lot of transparency, without a lot of accountability, and as far as we can tell, without making much of a difference. This feels like it's going to be different. This feels to me like an opportunity for us to take seriously, and I'm going to summarize here for you, essentially two devastating truths that came out of this report. First is this, that all those survivors of sexual abuse at the hands of Protestant ministers repeatedly begged the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention to create and maintain a database, a place online or even written before the internet was big. This whole process started back in the 80s to be able to please assemble the names of predators so that these guys couldn't just get fired from one church, drive across state lines to another place, get hired at another church, and continue to prey on people. They were rebuffed again and again and again. The executive committee ignored those requests, but here's the bad news. The worst part is all the while, the executive committee secretly maintained the very database that they publicly called a quote, legal impossibility. They had the list, but they were keeping it to prevent litigation. They were planning to use it as a defense in court instead of releasing it in a way that would have potentially protected lots of people. Now, thankfully, after this investigation came to light, the people who were in power, who made those devastating decisions, were immediately removed. That work is done. Unfortunately, removing those people does not undo the damage. However, one small bit of good news, the executive committee of the SBC did decide to release that list. It's now public. And it's available, and it is beginning to function and work. If you, do, if you Google SBC list and different state names, you will see that there are people who've been hired on full-time staff in pastoral positions who in the last seven days have stepped down for seemingly no reason. And then you find out what their name is, and you look at that list, and you realize the list is doing its job. But it should have happened a long time ago. What that communicates to me after reading these 700 documented instances of clergy sexual abuse in Protestant churches since the late 1980s, is that over 700 times, bearers of the divine image of God were stolen from. They were coerced, they were manipulated into giving up the most intimate thing that a person can share, and the vast majority of them were women and minors. Now the second devastating reality of the report is that the survivors who have been brave enough to step forward and speak out against their abusers across the last 20 to 40 years have often been belittled, stonewalled, ignored, demonized, and even sometimes publicly attacked by the executive committee and its employees. The investigation team found the testimonies of survivors to be credible on every count and found the testimonies of those who were in power at the time of the gross mistreatment of those survivors to be deceptive and dishonest on every count. So if I can be honest with you, my initial reaction, my desire, my want, was to find a way to cut ties with an organization that would wrong people to this degree. I wanted a week ago to recommend to our elders that we go our own way as an autonomous local church, that we find a way to do the good that happens by way of the convention In isolation. now I want to be clear that decision has not been made and it is not mine to make alone. We have much praying and thinking to do and I believe that most of us, as I've already recommended, should take the time necessary to understand the report, to be able to seriously consider the future relationship between True North and the Southern Baptist Convention. But a week removed from that reaction, I'm left with this question, why not? Why not leave? Well, why not burn the whole Southern Baptist Convention to the ground, right? Why not start something new with real standards of protection for victims with a culture that believes survivors and aggressively identifies and removes abusers when found? But something for all of us to consider is that, and this is again my opinion, that cutting ties and running from the mess, running from the pain, running from the truth of what happened is possibly worse than if we were to stay and to create reform. Again, this decision has not been made, and it is not mine to make, but I would ask you to consider, as you think and pray through this, some of you maybe for the first time ever in the last five minutes, if the Southern Baptist Convention dissolved tomorrow, every single predator in every Southern Baptist church would keep on praying on the week. Part of how this problem got as bad as it is, is in part because predators know that local churches rarely work together to vet and assess staff candidates. The Southern Baptist Convention of today on this side of the sexual abuse task force report has a unique opportunity, and I believe it's more than an opportunity. I believe we have a responsibility to get this right. The SBC is uniquely positioned to create the most exhaustive and comprehensive clergy predator database in the world, along with the best and most cutting-edge training for ministers, staff, deacons, elders, volunteers, and anybody else involved in ministry at SBC churches. We have a chance to do this the right way. And if we run, the only people who win, in my opinion, are the people who want to continue to have unfettered access to the weak. So that was Sunday. That was Sunday afternoon. This has haunted me. I've woken up under the cloud of this reality, not just because I'm embarrassed to be affiliated with an organization, because these are real people. Because I would like to think that by the grace of God, people who are working in Jesus' name would never find it within themselves to be able to treat other people this way. I would like to think that that's true. That feels a lot better. This week, I was confronted with a different reality. A world that my Bible understands and describes in clear detail. And yet often, I soften the blow, I insulate myself, I defend myself from what is really happening around me. Because I just don't know if I can take the reality. Two days went by, and then on Tuesday morning around 10 a.m., I was in staff meeting, and I got word, as you probably did as well, about the Robb Elementary Massacre in Uvalde in South Texas. Nineteen children, two teachers, gunned down by an 18-year-old on Tuesday morning. Again, another person made in the image of God who indiscriminately stole the lives of 21 other image bearers of God. So what I want to do for you, church, is I want to help you understand that there are great similarities between these two tragedies. The themes that emerge when tragedy arises in our lives, and if you're not used to it yet, it's just going to happen more and more frequently, more and more rapidly, faster and faster and faster as we move forward. The themes that emerge have everything to do with the nature of people, the way of the world, as Jesus would call it. And we have to try to go a different way. We have to understand that the way of Jesus does not ignore these tragedies, it does not try to circumnavigate them, it sees them, it confronts them directly, and it has much to say to us about how we navigate our reality. I see several similarities between these two tragedies, and I would argue with you that understanding and following the way of Jesus is more important now than it has ever been before for us. We need Jesus to rule and reign now more than we ever have. So the first similarity that I see is that both tragedies reek of unchecked power. On one hand, you have the consolidated and amassed power of a small group of men who were willing to manipulate their legal protections and their quote-unquote calling from God, which I'm very comfortable putting in air quotes, tells you what I think about that, to keep themselves and their money safe. That's the SBC side of things. On the other hand, you have the consolidated killing power of a young man willing to steal life away from anybody who came within the range of his rifle. And this is human nature. This is not an anomaly in our country as evidenced by the tragedy on Tuesday and the hundreds of other domestic shootings that happen every year. This is the way of the world. The way of the world is violence. The way of the world is to dominate another person. The way of the world is to hand out death as if we are the judge and arbiter of others' souls. The first concept that I want to draw for you out of the way of Jesus is this, that power is never an objective in the way of Jesus. Never. If you are taking notes today, I would write this down. This is something that ought to be memorized, understood, internalized, consolidated into you. You need to know this. Power is never an objective in the way of Jesus. In the second chapter of his letter to the Philippian church, Paul the apostle wrote this beginning in verse 5. I asked you to turn there earlier and we'll read now Philippians 2 beginning in verse 5. Paul says this. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The antithesis of what it means to be a human being. Every one of us building our own kingdom, believing equality with God is something we ought to grasp for. We ought to fight and kick and scream to force our way into it, even if it's in the name of justice. Jesus did not. Jesus counted equality with God not a thing to be grasped, but instead took action. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, even to the point of being born as a human being in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, humility is the way of Jesus. Humility is not a nice idea, it's not a virtue or value of the West, it's not something that we simply need to learn as kids in order to keep ourselves out of trouble with our parents. Humility is at the core of what it means to follow Jesus. Humility is the only right way to interact with your own self. There is no other way to have a self and be a self and follow Jesus than to humble and lower and and remove the consolidation of power from yourself. Think of Jesus' example. It was his way before he ever called a disciple. He was he humbled himself before he ever even had a single follower, before he ever taught in a synagogue, before he ever healed the sick or sent away a demon. Before he was even born to Joseph and Mary, he demonstrated a new way to be a human being by stooping low from the realm of the divine triune God and becoming a person, a man. And in his life, Jesus never clung to power. Jesus never hid behind anything. He never called upon his power, which was rightfully his and which he would have been totally justified to use, even to destroy his enemies. In fact, the climax of his life was betrayal by those he trusted and loved, and it was assassination by his political and ideological enemies. The way of Jesus does not end with you and I planting a flag at the top of a mound of our enemies' bodies. Jesus conquers the world by bringing hearts into the range of his effective will, into his kingdom. If we are going to follow him, that must be our way too. But don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the way of Jesus is the way of passivity or inaction. Listen to Paul again, just four verses later in Philippians two twelve. Paul says this, if this is true, therefore, my beloved, those whom I love, as you have always obeyed, there's your operative word, in the way that you've always acted, as you've always obeyed, even now, not only as in my presence, but even more so now that I'm apart from you, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling you've ever wondered what Paul means when he says that, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he just told you at the beginning of the verse, he says it's obedience. Obedience to who? To Jesus. That the way to conquer these kinds of things, the way to embrace the humility of Jesus, the way to go a different way from the way of the world is to actually do what Jesus actually said. Why? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. It's not your best practices, it's not your great ideas, it's not the wrath you feel at the injustice you're confronted with. It is God who works in you, both to will and to actually work for his good pleasure. According to Paul, the fruit of Jesus' humility in me and in you is a life of action. Not of our own action, which is almost always motivated politically or informed only by fear or outrage. At least that's true for me. Maybe you're all better than I am, but that's the way that I feel The actions of Jesus' teachings, the way of Jesus is marked by humility that works itself out in activity, serious activism. But we don't really believe this most of the time. We don't understand that we already have the answers to our huge questions about things like mass shootings and who should have power in the church and how best to lead a group of 47,000 churches in a way that keeps Jesus at the helm. All we have to do is read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we see the way of Jesus on display. But here's the problem. You and I have bought the lie that the way of the world is the only way to conquer the way of the world. And yet, what does Jesus say again and again? He turns to his disciples when confronted with the Pharisees. He turns to his disciples when confronted with the magistrates, when confronted with the law, when confronted with his own family that does not understand him, and he says to them, do not go the way of this world. I am different. This is different. It will work differently. Often, we don't really believe that that kind of life will make a difference, we bought the lie that retaliation, that vengeance, that more firepower, more retribution are better ways of life than the way of Jesus. Pastor Tim Keller, I think, says it best in this way. He says, on the cross, Jesus reversed the power dynamics of the world, giving up power and service rather than exploiting, and he took the just penalty for our unjust rejection of God and the treatment of others. If that is Jesus' way, then that is our way. Power is never an objective in the way of Jesus. The second way that both of these tragedies, I think, have a lot in common is they are marked by men who have not been held accountable. In the case of the SBC, four men, two of whom were hired only to give legal counsel to the church, guided an organization that depends on transparency and accountability. They guided that organization down a road of lies and deceit so dark that it took a nearly unanimous motion from regular church members like you to force them to open their books and reveal the depths of their wickedness. As hopeful as I am about the future of the SBC, I am unwilling to dodge the fact that in some way it falls to normal church members like you and normal pastors like me to always be asking the right questions and demanding transparency from the leaders of any organization that handles the kind of money that the SBC disperses every year. So, to whom it may concern, lesson learned on my part. In the case of Rob Elementary, we've been forced to reckon with the total lack of accountability from the family of origin of the shooter. The world that this young man came from that formed and shaped him to believe that this was somehow a right trajectory for his life. Over and above that, in the last 48 hours, the initially concealed failure of law enforcement to intervene on behalf of a classroom of children No accountability in the family of origin, avoidance of accountability where it should be and would be appropriate brings us to the second principle that I want you to embrace, which is this, that neither secrecy, anonymity, suppression of the truth, nor intentional concealment are objectives in the way of Jesus. You can just use the word lies if you want to. But I know the way that liars think, and so I wanted to get specific here. None of these tactics that protect us from the truth are found in the way of Jesus. Jesus does not manipulate, he will not twist, he does not tell half-truths, he does not hold things back from people out of fear of what they'll think of him when he tells them what's really happening. He says what is true, and because of his life, the truth that he shares lands in a way that is transformative. Not aggressive, not abrasive, not combative, it does its job, it brings freedom. Listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 12. This is beginning in verse 1. Luke is writing, he says, In the meantime, so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another to come and see Jesus. And so in the midst of that, Jesus began to say to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy is when you speak a certain way and live a different way, okay? He says, Don't do that. Don't be deceitful in your lifestyle. Verse 2, Because nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. The reckoning of the SBC begins with the truth coming into the light, as Jesus said that it would, as he promised that it always will. The Robb Elementary shooting was plotted and executed by a young man who savored the secret power of fantasizing about taking the lives of others. But don't misunderstand, church, lest you convince yourself that you're somehow fundamentally different from those people. Without Jesus, we too will drift into half-truths, we'll drift into little lies, we'll drift into lifestyles of deception and secrecy. There is no objective within the concrete reality of the present kingdom of God that can be obtained by deception, secrecy, or any kind of moral sleight of hand. Third, both The silencing and ignoring of sexual abuse survivors and the killing of 21 innocent people at Robb Elementary are themselves abuse and denial of the dignity of human beings as image bearers of God. The powerful men who plotted behind the closed doors of the Southern Baptist Convention propagated the most shameful form of dehumanization a person can inflict upon another, to ignore to shut down, to discredit someone who is crying out for help, help for, in the case of the survivors who called for this investigation, fully corroborated and fully documented and easily provable cases of abuse by clergy. To do that is itself additional abuse. It is an abuse of power and privilege to embrace the convenience of ignorance in the face of a tragedy. Have you ever thought about that before? How messed up is our world that you and I even get to choose whether we care about this or not? We can distract ourselves. We can pull up a news article and then follow an ad about some great Memorial Day sale at whatever website we just visited that our phone remembers and so it projects a new ad that's relevant to us. We can allow the news cycle to push us on to the next tragedy in the next 10 to 14 days, or we can sit with this reality. But we've been given a choice in part because there is some interest From some entity, I would argue that it's God's enemy of keeping you calloused and keeping you insulated and keeping you unavailable to the reality that's around you. Because if you think these things aren't real and you think they don't really matter matter to you, you'll continue to follow your own way. What will push you to the position of desperation that you need to be in, that is appropriate for this day and hour, is to face these things. That's what will put you in a place where you'll say, I have no answer for this. I need to follow Jesus because I have no one else. There's no authority, there's no politician, there's no pundit on whatever news station who has any answers for me. That's true. That's right. Acknowledge that and then bring those questions to the Jesus who will answer them. Without Jesus, we might never care enough to learn the names of SBC abuse survivors. Women like Jen Lyell, Tiffany Thigpen, Hannah Kate Williams, Jules Woodson, and Debbie Vasquez. Without Jesus, we might feel sad that a crime was committed against children, but we might never learn the names of 11-year-old Miranda Mathis and 10-year-old Jose Flores. But even if we were sad, without Jesus, we would fail to understand the loss of human life as sacred, the loss of human life as an attack against the image of God in another person. Believer, as followers of Jesus, if you haven't figured this out yet, tragedy does not hurt less, it hurts more. It's supposed to hurt. Following Jesus is not about finding a way to put on your bulletproof jacket and clench your teeth until you get to heaven. Following Jesus leads us into the places where the work of God's enemy is rampant, the places that Jesus' ministry took him. And it gives us a word to speak that has value for a victim. Not platitudes, not soothing words, not trying to throw money at a problem and hoping that it gets better, but you being present, you a person who extends the effective will of God, who brings his kingdom with you. This is the way of Jesus. Our rabbi is Jesus of Nazareth who stood outside the tomb of his good friend Lazarus and wept as he watched death steal the beauty of human life away. In John chapter 11, Jesus was summoned to Uh, the home of three of his best friends, two sisters named Mary and Martha and their brother whose name was Lazarus. In verse 28, I want you to get the snapshot from this story. The Bible says this, when Martha had said these things to Jesus, she'd spoken to Jesus sort of right at the edge of their property as she could just see that he was arriving. She ran and she called her sister Mary and she said to Mary privately, the teacher is here, our rabbi is here and he's calling for you, Mary. And when Mary heard this, she rose up quickly and she went to Jesus Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him, just out on the road. And When the Jews who were with her in the house, who were consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was, and when she saw him, she fell at his feet, and she said to him, and this is heartbreaking to me. Because this is the cry of every parent, of every child that was lost on Tuesday. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you, is the question underneath this question. Where were you? Why? And when Jesus saw her weeping, and when the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was moved in his spirit. He was disturbed, is what it says in Greek. He was upset. He was uncomfortable. He was emotional. He was greatly troubled. And so he asked, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept, because you only lay a body in the grave if it's dead. You only put a body in the ground if the person is gone out of that shell. And so Jesus wept to the point That it impacted these watching people who don't even know who he is. And they say to one another, See how much he loved him. That's the answer. The answer to that question is I'm here now. I've been here all along. I'm present. I care. This is the world that we live in. This is the true cost of what it means to go your own way and build your own kingdom. You build it on the backs of other people. The way of Jesus calls for you and I to mourn not less of a loss, but a greater loss than just the infringement of human rights or the death of innocence. The way of Jesus calls us to acknowledge abuse survivors. It calls us to acknowledge shooting victims as eternal image bearers of God. These tragedies, like it or not, are our business because they are an attack on the way of Jesus and they are an attack on the kingdom of our God. Our great temptation would be in a moment of emotion, like I'm obviously experiencing right now, to want to return fire in the same way that we have received it. And yet, and this is the last principle that I would ask you to consider, the way of Jesus never justifies as a means to an end intentional disregard for the image of God in a person. Never. This is why Jesus is better than me. He's better than you. He has a way and a method to solve these problems that doesn't require that I go after the people who have hurt and wounded those that I care about with vengeance and retribution. We can never justify murder in response to murder. We can never justify oppression in response to oppression, nor violence in response to violence. The way of Jesus redefines what it means to be human as it reforms, it terraforms the earth into a reconciled home where God and humanity can be together again. So what do we do? We take tragedy seriously. And we allow room in our hearts and minds to dwell on it. And we consider the causes and the effects and the human experience of everybody involved. As our imaginations lead us into the experience of others, we grieve as we begin to feel their grief. We mourn as we begin to feel their loss. We weep as often as we need to. As the faces of women and children, abused and silenced and killed, enter our minds This is no small thing for us, and yet we respond as people of Jesus, not as people of the world. The way of Jesus is never more important than when we enter into crisis. His way is not the way of sanitized religion. It is not the way of a brave face and emotions kept secret, but it is also not the way of violence and retribution. It is the way of justice and mercy and hope, and it allows us room and space to feel and think and mourn and pray. So I want to read a liturgy over you. It's written as a prayer, so as I read this, you're free to bow and and listen. You can look at the screens. We'll have the words if you want to read along. This comes from the writing of a man named Douglas McKelvey, who's written a series of books called Every Moment Holy that I would highly commend to you if you're interested in exploring liturgy as a spiritual practice. And we'll finish here. We will finish here as people of the way of Jesus, following our rabbi, abiding in the vine, and trusting that Jesus knows what he is doing when all we can see is chaos and meaningless loss. So I'll close with these words. O God, who gathers what has been scattered, shelter us now in the shadow of your wings. O Christ, who binds our wounds, be our great healer. O Spirit, who enters our every grief, intercede now for this hurting people, In this broken land. Be present in the midst of this far-reaching pain, O Lord, for we are reeling again at news of another loss of life that touches us all, news of flourishing diminished, of individuals harmed, of pain imposed, not only upon victims and their families who bear now the immediate brunt of it, but also upon our nation, for we are connected as a people, and this hurt, this grief touches us all. Engage our imaginations and move our hearts to compassion, O Lord. That we would interact with these casualties, not as news stories or statistics, but as our own sisters and brothers, flesh and blood, divine image bearers, irreplaceable individuals whose losses will leave gaping holes in homes, friendships, workplaces, churches, schools, organizations, and neighborhoods. Be merciful to those now wounded. Be present with those now bereaved. You do not run from our brokenness, O God. You move ever toward those in need. Your heart is always inclined toward those who suffer. Now let your mercies be active through the hands and the words and the compassionate care of those who willingly enter this sadness to console and to serve. Be with all who move toward this need. The helpers, the counselors, the first responders, those who offer aid and protection The pastors and intercessors, those who meet immediate practical needs, those who seek to heal physical wounds, and those who come after to carry on the long, hard work of rebuilding families and hearts and lives and community. Grant each of them wisdom, courage, vision, sympathy, and strength to serve effectively in their various capacities. Even in the shadow of such tragedy, let us not lose hope. Give us eyes to see the rapid movements of mercy rushing to fill these newly wounded spaces. Let us see in this the echoes of your own mercy and compassion, a foretaste of your kingdom coming to earth, and move our own hearts also, equipping us to intercede, to act, and to respond however we are able. Amen. I want to add to that by praying for you personally, and then we'll be done today. Father, thank you for your example in our lives. As long as there have been people, God, there has been tragedy, often of this scale and even greater, yet that does not mean that your will for us is to dismiss what we've experienced in the last seven days as insignificant. God, give us the grace and mercy to resist the urge to politicize, which is often our our most close at hand reaction in moments like these. Give us room, God, to be open with each other, to be honest about our emotional state, about the grief that we carry, God, or maybe the grief that we don't. Give us room in our hearts and our minds to be changed. Renovate us, God, from the inside out, please, and make us into your image. Let the only movement that we would live and die for be the movement of your grace and mercy across the face of this planet, God, and when and where we are able, give us the courage to stand up and to speak the truth and to stand in the gap for those who can't. We love you, God. We bring this immense weight that we carry to you, we bring these burdens to you, we offer you, God, the future that you already hold, but we give it to you willingly today, ready to participate with you in wherever you'll take us next. We trust you with these things, God. We are trying so hard to trust you with these things. Please be near to us. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.